I'm Mike Merrill. I'm Ken Jacobson. And this is Top Docs. Today, we were speaking with Mark Monroe, the writer on the Emmy-nominated documentary, The Bee Gees. As it sounds, this is a retrospective of the story of three and maybe four brothers came out of Australia, landed on the shores of Britain, and then found their way to Miami. It covers their entire career from an early sort of boy bandish, like the Beatles or the Beach Boys, to producing a lot of songs I didn't even know they produced in the 1960s and 70s, up to their apotheosis in the 70s as kind of these avatars of disco, uh, and then the backlash to them, to disco, to dance music, which caused a big hit to their reputation. I loved also how, even though Barry is the only surviving brother, the story, while it is told from his perspective, also is very conscious of how they tell the other brothers' stories and making sure that they're all on equal footing. So you really do get a sense of who they all were as musicians and brothers and celebrities. It was really great to talk to Mark and hear about how Frank Marshall, who's the director of the film, he really responded to Barry's story and to the story of the brothers. It was also just really interesting, I thought, to learn how a writer, in this case, Mark Monroe, works with a director like Frank and the editor on the film to create this story arc. I'd say the movie in tone is an appreciation of the Bee Gees. It's not a bridge burning, tell all kind of documentary. It's much more of an appreciation and in some ways kind of a revisionist history. Hey, you forgot how good the Bee Gees really were, didn't you? They bring in some fabulous people like Mark Ronson and Noel Gallagher and Justin Timberlake to make that case. I certainly found myself feeling a little bit ashamed that I dismissed them over the years and didn't take them seriously as musicians because they are the real deal. Mark Monroe is that rare bird in the documentary field. He's known primarily as a writer. He has an astounding 61 writing credits on IMDb. He's worked with the who's who of all the top documentary directors or many of them from Frank Marshall in this film to Ron Howard, Jeff Orlowski, who we had on an earlier podcast on The Social Dilemma. Two of the films Mark's written, The Cove in 2009 and Icarus in 2017, have won Academy Awards for Best Documentary Feature. So check this out. To give you a sense of just how busy Mark is, in 2020, besides the Bee Gees, he was writer on three other big feature-length documentaries, The Dissident, The Cost of Silence, and Till Kingdom Come. This year, he has even more. There's six films that either have been released already this year or will be later in the year. Plus, he is sitting in the director's chair himself because he directed an episode you mentioned, Mark Ronson, earlier. He's directed an episode in the Apple Plus series, Watch the Sound with Mark Ronson. So Mark is a very busy guy. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised he had time to talk to us. Twice, did, you know, and, and Frank Marshall also <laughs> rumor has it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little history there. Maybe we'll reveal on top docs behind the scenes someday. So let, let's give Marcus just do awards wise. He earned an Emmy nomination this year for the Bee Gees for outstanding writing for nonfiction program. 
He's been nominated twice previously in that category and has won two Writers Guild of America awards for documentary screenplay for The Cove and this year with Brian Fogle for The Dissident. Way to go, Mark. Just a reminder, if you're enjoying these pods, please follow, smash the like button, make a comment, share on social media. When you do this, you really help other documentary lovers find us. Coming up next is our discussion with Mark Monroe about the Bee Gees. How can you mend the broken heart? I have no idea. Why do you make documentary films? I started out wanting to be a journalist. My father was a journalist and I was addicted to Edward R. Murrow books and actually went to journalism school and I became a journalist. I worked at CNN, but I lost the desire once I got in it. It wasn't a business for me. There's a part of journalism that um, can be very tiring. Everyone always thinks they're right. <laughs> it's a lot of arguing about what the story is and the importance of the story. And maybe on that level, I wasn't made for it. I'm, I have a different personality. And then as time progressed, I think we've seen the absolute kind of, in many ways, the downfall of journalism, the succumbing to corporate forces and to the political undertones of our country. Now, most people, they don't believe in journalism that much. They know that there's news for the left and a news for the right, but we used to have just the news. I think in some ways, these documentaries fill that hole of wanting to just know that something is true. When you understand that these things take several years to make and people dive into these stories to, to get at something, I think they fill a void of feeling like this is a story that's actually true that everyone can agree on. I think that's one of the reasons why I like documentaries is that they're hard to make, they take a long time, and they try to get at something that is true, that is objectively true. Whether they're doing so with the standard practices of art, manipulating things to get at the truth. That's what art does. You put music underneath things and you put pictures underneath things, you cut, you you do things, but you're trying to get at a true story. Even though you made all those cuts, you put the music under it, you, you put things out of order. It feels true to the experience. Now, yes, the political documentaries, people are always going to parse them as left or right, but there are a ton of great documentaries being made that are not political in any way that I think both sides of the aisle look at and go, that's true. That's a true story. And so when you work on something for several years and someone sees it that's in the film and they give you that affirmation, that, that feels good. So that's why I work in docs. When did you fall out of love with journalism? When you look back at your history, you can see clues to your future. <laughs> I remember I was working late at night at CNN, so I would go in at five and come home at three. Part of my job was to watch the feeds that come in from the international news organizations. You'd watch the Reuters feed or the TASS feed, ITN, and they would send these big bundles of stories, video, raw footage of this war or that war. And I pitched to my bosses, like, we should just do a, basically a small documentary on the news each night, right? On this stuff, like you can cut something without all this talking of South Africa or what's going on in the Middle East, because it's amazing. This footage is amazing. It doesn't always have to be just like cut into two minute sound bites. Plus it's the middle of the night. Who cares? Let's do a half hour show and I'll do it every night. That'll be my job. And they, of course, turned me down. So I left. <laughs> it's a funny thing when you live in Atlanta, if you live in an apartment building, there always are CNN people in the apartment building. And you can tell the people who do overnights because they have their windows blocked That's out. Right. And you hear them at 3 a.m. making dinner and they have parties with each other. That was uh, me. What is the Bee Gees about? 
It's a film about brothers and about family, and it's a film that looks at an iconic kind of Mount Rushmore music world act who maybe has been forgotten, or at least does not quite get the respect the Bee Gees deserve. Part of what we were trying to do was reset the Bee Gees for an audience that maybe either doesn't remember how influential they were or just doesn't know them. For a lot of us, we'd wonder, you're a writer for documentaries. Don't you just point the camera at the subject and then edit it a bit later? What does a writer do for a documentary? It's funny because documentaries are meant to feel like they fell out of the sky that way. The story just arrived that way. A good friend of mine, Stacy Peralta, said, you write the documentary four, five, six times. You write it when you construct the questions that you ask. You write it when you pull which sound bites you may take from a two-hour interview. And if you've got 30 two-hour interviews and you've only got 90 minutes to tell the story, it's pretty selective. You write it when you frame up the movie, when you decide what the beginning, middle, and end is. And then, of course, you write it from scene to scene in a way by curating those sound bites. A lot of it is story structuring deciding what the overall story is, the beginning, middle, and end. And listen, a lot of documentaries don't have writers because they're all, everyone's doing every, everything naturally. The editors do it. The editors are always writing in a way. And so is the director, of course. I think the greatest job of a director is in gaining trust of the subjects and understanding where to put the camera and getting the access to a story that maybe a lot of people don't get access to and being able to capture it in a cinematic way. And I think the greatest strength of an editor is making every moment better and bigger and more meaningful than maybe it felt in real life. You have the perfect shots and you can make the edits and you can have the music come in at just the right time and the person say just the right thing. And suddenly a moment in time is bigger and has more meaning than maybe it did in real life. Not all directors and editors are great necessarily at holding the full picture in their hands, the 30,000 foot view, the beginning, middle, and end, the ways it could be done. And so I, I feel like I'm a little bit of a liaison between the two. I'm part an editor and I'm part director, but really I'm a writer. I'm just trying to track the story and I'm just trying to keep the whole train on track and getting to the best story that the material has to offer in, in the quickest manner possible. Robert Caro is famous for having the entirety of his book on his wall. He has every mm -hmm. single bit as an outline. Do you have any sort of special way you share the story visually or otherwise? It's not brain surgery. I have something I call the story map. It's just a word doc. I didn't go to film school. I toyed with screenwriting at first. So I used to dissect my favorite films, narrative films. And the way I would dissect them is to just card them out scene by scene. And what you learn after you do two or three or five is that there's only so many scenes that could be in act one. There's only that much real estate by the 27 minute mark or whatever, by the turn, you have how many scenes? And it became a math thing to me. And I started realizing, wow, if you've got, depending on the pace of the film, if you've got 15 scenes in act one, that's pretty packed act one. And so that's what I do with the documentaries is I look at the overall story. I look at the material that's been shot. I look at the desire of the director. And I try to imagine the film and I put math to it. If you only have 15 scenes to get to act two, what are those 15 scenes based on what you have and what you want to say? And then when I write those things out, I do act one, act two, act three. Usually act two is a little longer and act three is a little bit shorter because you want to feel like the film is rumbling down the hill to a conclusion. I only write four or five sentences and I write it in shorthand. What I'm writing really is the essential information of these scenes as they flow and what the audience is meant to get from them, whether emotionally or informationally. You're going to make them sad because you're going to play the death here. Then you're going to drop the hint of the 
secret clue here, ordering the information and describing what you want the audience reaction to be. And that way, you're just coming at the story with an intention. I guess the caveat to this whole thing is I've never written a story map that's become a movie. It always changes, but that doesn't matter. I'm, I'm fine with that. The purpose of it is a tool to get everyone thinking about the film in the same way and to have the intention be the same for all of us. Some films, the editor is also listed as a writer. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, how do you work with the editor? Because they too are working on structure and acts one, two, and three. I work closest probably with the editors. I'm in constant communication. The way I work with them is by building the story map and working with them and their feedback on the story map because they are smart people are thinking about story all the time as well. And it's a fluid document until we all agree. Should we do it this way? Should we do it that way? Should we move it around? But once we set it, I want to go forward on that plan. And at that point, creating scenes on paper alongside the editors. I give in to whatever the editor's process is. The, the edit is the last stand of the film. However they want to do it, that's how I want to do it. And some editors prefer that they charge forward and I react to what they do. A lot of times it is a combination of the two things. An editor will take, particularly if it's a verite film or has a lot of verite scenes, that's their domain. I don't look at the raw footage of the verite and go, you should do it like this. I just say, hey, show me the character reveal with that verite in the best way you can. And when it's a mix of things, they usually take off on the verite and I look at the historical stories. What's the origin story of the science behind this or how the murder happened story? And I construct on paper, I promote basically an order of sound bites that has a beginning, middle and end in that scene and a button or an exclamation point that lands on a declaration or a statement that has a punch to it. I'm trying to always build scenes on paper that get the editors excited. They get to something and they get to land in the middle of something that's already halfway created. If I can plow forward on paper, maybe we get to a rough cut sooner. Maybe we get to a deadline sooner. Maybe we make it to a Sundance submission. It's a long process. I'm just trying to shorten it and to protect it from going off the rails. Let's delve into this project. How did the Bee Gees documentary come together and when did you join the project? I joined early on. I was maybe one of the linchpins or the intermediaries between the whole thing. Frank Marshall, our director, was talking to Steve Barnett at Capitol Records about documentaries. He had worked on a Sinatra film series. They were looking for something else to do. And I guess Barnett had suggested to him Barry and the Bee Gees because they just got the catalog. This is all from what Frank tells me, but I know soon after, because I had made a film with Kennedy Marshall and a director named Ryan Suffern, uh, who worked at Kennedy Marshall, with Frank as an EP, a producer. And we had a lot of fun on a very dark film called Finding Oscar. But Frank knew I had worked on the Beatles film, Eight Days a Week, with Ron Howard. And he looked at the Bee Gees and he saw a similar kind of story in that it had a lot of history, a lot going on, a lot of cooks in the kitchen in terms of interested parties, not just the Bee Gees and their families, but the music of it all. And he wondered how I did it. And so I had a coffee with Frank and I said, oh, I worked with these guys over here, White Horse Pictures. And we'd actually made several films in the music genre. And I described it to him and he was like, ah, I'd like to meet Nigel Sinclair, who's the producer, longtime partner of mine. 
So I kind of hooked them up to discuss this thing and it went well. And the next thing I know, we're all marching forward together to make this Bee Gees film, which was pretty exciting. A lot of times, you know, in this business, you meet with people and people say, oh, we should do this, we should do that. Not all of it comes to fruition. I think because Nigel and Frank had both respected each other's work, there was a mutual understanding of, hey, we could do something both fun and great here. And it's a story that not a lot of people know. And those things get people excited. So that's how it started. So you talked a bit about the origins of a film. Is there also something to the particular time right now? Why is now a good time for this documentary? I think there's a lot of reasons that it's timely now. One is that Barry is the only one uh, of the brothers left, and he felt a desire to tell the story. And very generously made it clear from the very first time we met him that it was important for him and us and for the story that his brother's points of view be represented. Of course, he's older now, and I think he's reflecting back on his life, and he wants to make sure that people remember the Bee Gees for the reasons why I think he and his brothers made the music. What we stumbled upon while working on the film is a new understanding of this backlash for probably the most famous point of their career, which is the disco years. Barry would, I still today think, chafes at the word disco being used. They did a lot of things with music. They were chameleons uh, of the form and they were accomplished in uh, a great many ways. Nevertheless, most people know them from Saturday Night Fever and the disco look. Delving into that story, what we discovered that the Bee Gees created a form or helped create a form of music that really had a lot of roots in the gay society and also black society and, and brown society. A lot of folks, the doors were opened for them to come out into the world through this music because of the popularity of the music. Part of the backlash was a backlash against the other, against someone who's not part of the establishment or the white establishment. And I think that story is as fresh today as it was back then. In terms of structure, we've established that you're the structure guy, <laughs> the superstructure guy on the film. I think Mike and I both agree the structure feels very solid here with this film. The way it carries the, the story forward seems very effortless and fluid while you're also building in some big moments, emotional moments, story moments along the way. What were the biggest challenges you faced in coming up with the structure? I think the biggest challenge on this film and a lot of films is being confronted with this, the story versus the real estate, as they say. The Bee Gees lived an extraordinary career and many careers in a way. To boil some story down into 90 minutes or two hours is almost impossible <laughs> you know, to get it right. Human beings are complex and the nuance is great. What you're hoping to do really is create a story that anyone who sees it will not be able to unknow it. They'll be curious about it from the end of time because you've shown them enough of a life that they have to find out more when that opportunity presents itself. In this story, like I say, they'd lived four or five careers and to give them all screen time was very difficult. 
without feeling like we're being dismissive of them or their accomplishments. We were always fearing that we were letting them down at certain points of their career. I think the most difficult thing was trying to find the appropriate amount of time to get at the heart of the story, which is the brothers, and yet not get lost down a rabbit hole, which you very easily could have. You can make a whole documentary on just the 1960s version of the Bee Gees, and it would be fascinating. As a writer, what was a specific creative challenge that you faced and how did you go about solving it? I'm very keen, as you probably can tell from the story map idea, about the, the timing of things within a, within a film. When watching a Rough Cut, I'm always feeling like we got to get to this point in the story at this minute mark. We got to move everything up so that we land here at the turn of the act. I'm very oriented in that kind of three-act structure. The Bee Gees have a very complex early story in, in which they were born in the UK and then immigrated to Australia and then became child stars in Australia and came back. And we were always late in getting back. It always felt like, wow, we're too deep in the movie. I started to just demand that we do a version that got them back into the UK at a certain mark. I don't know, it was 23 minutes or something. By this time we were deep in the rough cut. And I was like, look, all of these scenes exist. Like we've built it. Like well, they're not being destroyed. We can put it back at any time, but we need to start playing and figuring out how could we do this? What could we take out and move around? What could we tell later? Can we move some part of their childhood on the other side of England? All that just to hit the mark. I've worked on enough of these films and I've had enough of those experiences. The audience starts to feel antsy if you're not setting the hero down on the mission at a certain point in the film. And that was an occasion here where we were just lingering too long in the early part of the film that it begins to feel like not enough propulsion into the rest of the story. It's a painful discussion because the thing you should know, especially at these high-end docs, is the editors are so great. And I think that's where the structure comes in and the timing comes in. The scenes are wonderful and you could watch it as is, but the overall piece will suffer unless you don't get there quicker. So having some of those discussions and breaking hearts over material that people have lived with for some time and they like and they enjoy, but saying, look, it has to go. That's tough. So you're a mender of broken hearts, it sounds like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the mending takes some time, as the Bee Gees will let you know. Early on in the film, Barry is heard to say something like, nothing is true. It all comes down to perception. Could you explain what he meant by that? Our first visit with him, no cameras, no recording devices, just getting to know him and understanding what the story is from his perspective. And he made that point very clear to us at that time. What he was saying to us is that his brothers lived a version of this that he can't know. And it's very important that we represent that in some way. And I think what's remarkable about that line is that's one of the first things he told us. I've done a lot of interviews with a lot of people. Oftentimes when you interview people, they're making it clear that they're telling you the story. <laughs> this is what happened, especially powerful people. They tend to understand a version of events that they believe is the version that matters. And so to have a heavyweight sit down in front of us and basically say, hey, I don't know exactly how it all worked out. I only know my version and I'm certain it's not the full version is an amazing thing to have happened to you.
incredibly generous, I would say, to the families of his brothers. When I watched the, the opening of the film, I was really struck by, I think it's the last shot before the title. It's from the Oakland Coliseum concert, and there's a spotlight on the three brothers performing. And then the spotlight goes on Barry and the other two brothers are in darkness. And then I think we go to the title. It really hit home for me when you were just talking about Barry's desire to basically restore the brothers' primary points of view in telling this story. This is the story that I've heard Frank tell many times is that we always wanted to start off with a concert and that concert, he, he always says, I couldn't have directed that better for this film than, than these guys did in 1977. And that it does feature the three of them and eventually ends up with a spotlight on Barry. And then we go into Barry's story. In terms of making sure we represent the brother's point of view, we met with the families of Morrison and, and Robin off the record meetings and lunches and long discussions to try to make sure that we got it right to visual interviews to see with Robin and Morris. Those were very comprehensive interviews. And we were fortunate to get the raw to work with, which is unusual. And then beyond that, our archivists got a lot of radio interviews they had done at different points in their career, which is another kind of puzzle piece. The Morris you hear in 1974 is a lot different from the guy you might hear in 1986. Figuring out how to deploy them in those moments while also maintaining this kind of reflective view, looking back view, it was a challenge. The interviews you do with other musicians, contemporary musicians, one of the ones that really stuck out for me was Noel Gallagher and how every time he talks about singing with your brother, how he looks away from the camera, he's clearly affected. It was very interesting to see him reflecting on his own sibling challenges as he considered the Bee Gees. It was an amazing interview. It was very electric in the room. Frank grew up with a father who was a working musician. He is the oldest of brothers. <laughs> he had a band with them when they were young for a hot minute. He's very musical and grew up in a very musical family. Frank had a, had a kind of shorthand for this brother thing in terms of brothers and music and working with them and, and trying to be creative with them. Very early on, he was like, we should look at all the possible brothers in music and see what we can glean from them in terms of how they could illuminate the story of Barry and his brothers. The crazy thing about it is that they were all huge fans. We got some great material in the film with Noel Gallagher. He told four or five different stories about his own journey to the Bee Gees and his own initial meeting with Barry and what an incredible fanboy he was in that moment. And that stuff's not in the film because it, we just couldn't fit everything in. That's part of the reason why there's an electricity to it. Yes, it's hugely because of his past with his own brother, but also because of his respect for Barry and wanting to say the right thing and get it right. Did your conception of the Bee Gees and the film change once you started going into these interviews with these musicians and hearing the respect and the love they have for the Bee Gees music? Normally when you do these big films, you have this wish list of people who could participate. And if you get half the people on the list, that's incredibly fortunate just because especially busy entertainers or powerful people in general, getting on their schedule is not an easy thing. And then they've got to actually want to do it and show up for it in a way. What's remarkable about this film 
is that everyone we asked said yes almost immediately. And they wanted to figure out how they could participate. That speaks to the respect that Barry and the Bee Gees hold and have in the music industry. I, I just It's shocking and it shouldn't be. Therein lies our mission in the film is that it shouldn't be. Because once you take a deep, long look at what they accomplished and the material, I can see it. I can understand how you could make a phone call to this star or that star, and they would say yes. And I think we got a taste of that at the very beginning, because right at the very beginning after we said yes, and we all agreed we wanted to go forward and do this, the Grammys were holding a retrospective. We got to go to the Grammys to witness it. It was amazing. Not just the performances. Bruno Mars was there. There was a lot, there was a lot of young contemporary artists who were doing BG songs in an, an incredible way. But the level of respect just in the audience by all of these artists dancing and standing showing the respect for the Bee Gees was eye-opening it told us right there what our mission was the people who make music understand and the rest of the world needs to and that's our job one of the milestones in the Bee Gees career comes after their breakup in 1969 there are a couple of lean years there and then in 74, 75, they go to Miami and they record the main course album. That becomes a hugely popular album with Jive Talk, and I think is a number one hit coming off that album. Can you talk a bit about their creative process during the recording of that album and just what you were able to glean through osmosis by watching the great footage that exists of that time period? I've talked a little bit about how generous Barry was with us. And I think the same goes for the creative process. Unlike in today's world, artists can live wherever they want to, and they can come together when they make albums and go out on their own ways when they're done. But because this was a family, they all moved together. They all were together all the time. They agreed to try Miami as a recording studio. The brothers moved to Miami and they moved their mom and dad to Miami and they convinced their keyboardist, their guitarist, their band to move to Miami with them. And they all brought their wives and girlfriends and every day was tea and every night was dinner and every weekend was partying and having fun. And every Saturday afternoon was on the boat and in the bay, like they lived together. And I think the creative process is infused with that when they were inspired by a beat or a rhythm or a track or a groove or anything, they played off each other. Fortunately, they recorded tapes of themselves doing it. It sounds like they had a lot of fun making music and making fun music, dancing music, celebrate life music, maybe going overboard sometimes. Sure. They're rock stars making a lot of money. But how overboard can you get if your mom and dad's living right there with you? If your families, if your brothers are counting on you, if your kids are in the swimming pool, like they were all a small community. And I think the creative process was infused with that community family feeling. They seem to encapsulate both sides of what we traditionally think as a creative process. One is they wrote a thousand songs. They showed up to the studio every day. They also were open to inspiration. Famously, they talk about how the car driving over the bridge to Miami, the click, 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 fed into the opening of Jive Talking. The famous story of driving every day over the Biscayne Bay to get to the studio, the old pavement had these clicks in the car and it had a certain rhythm. And he would come into the studio mouthing that rhythm and they 
basically created a song off of it. And in creating the song, again, it's very kind of an open way. What can you do with this? And where can I go with this? And how about the guitar sound like this? And why don't we do this? It was all a, a world of possibilities, but based on just that one little thing. I think Morris doesn't get maybe enough respect. We have a couple stories in the film of just coming up with a lick, just a, a thing on the piano that suddenly turns into the main theme of one of the songs that we all grew up with. And it's just doodling on a piano and coming up with a repeatable line that's catchy. And next thing you know, there's three-part harmony to it. Next thing you know, there's a groove behind it. And the next thing you know, it's in the clubs. That was the Bee Gees. It's also true that their innovation does seem to spring from their openness to suggestion. So for instance, Barry's famous falsetto voice, we can't really imagine the Bee Gees without it, but it wasn't always there. And yet it's the producer, the Atlantic producer, Arif Martin, who brings that out of him on that album. I think what they were open to was a producer more than anything. I think they had lived their whole lives being the ones in charge of each other and in charge of the process. And they had figured it out and they had gone forward in that way. But it's a little bit like finger painting versus an artist with a full palette of colors. Arif Martin had done some seminal albums, both R&B and jazz, and understood how to put the pieces together in a way maybe that they, the brothers, they were just trying to get it on tape. So when you have Arif Martin come in and he's painting with their colors, he's saying, do this here. We'll put a little of that there play this over here nights on Broadway he was like oh this sounds great for a great improvisational high register rip just get in there and just play with it right and that turns into the falsetto that was so successful they began to base their band around it in many ways they began to write songs with it it was a new color on the palette that suddenly could propel them in a new direction and that's what they did Saturday Night Fever, obviously that's their huge hit. The film, I think, does a good job of kind of separating out the music from the movie to some extent. And I basically learned that the, the music was independent of the movie in many ways and probably would have happened with or without the movie. The guys were creative all the time and they had gone to France to basically you know, mix a live album. They're always working on new songs, new material. Stigwood had called them uh, and Bill Oaks worked for Stigwood and said, we're going to make this movie. We just need some songs. Can you give us some songs? They were already working on some songs, but they decided to flesh out the demos and send him in a couple of weeks, a handful of songs. That was probably one of the more remarkable stories that I knew the moment Bill Oaks said it in the interview, I was like, that's going in the film. Here's this guy, he's this young guy who's been sent on a mission to get the songs from the Bee Gees, and he bugs them in this countryside estate, and they go, yeah, 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 we'll get it to you, we'll get it to you. And so he's holed up in a hotel in Paris, just waiting at their mercy, thinking, are they ever going to send the songs? Are they even writing the songs? And within a couple of weeks, an envelope comes to his door with a cassette tape, and he puts on the cassette tape, and it's five songs, and all five are like ginormous number one hits that the songs of our of our youth. They were just on a cassette tape. They were like, these are good enough. And that becomes like the greatest album of all time. It's insane. 
So if I could tie a couple different threads together, Mark Ronson, the drum machine, the drum loop, I think you recently directed a piece on drum machines. Yeah. So did you want to talk about the drum loop? Again, it's all these happy accidents and documentaries. We love the happy accident. I mean, it makes it feel human. It's, it's a great tell, right? It's fun. So unfortunately the drummer's family, his mother had a, a medical issue and he had to leave. And so there they are with all the gear, with the desire, with the need for songs, but no drummer. And Carl and Albie, you know, the producers and engineer with them in France are like, let's just, let's get the drums we have on tape and figure out how to work with them. And that need, that desire led them to totally manufacturing a way to loop the tape in the studio through some rig they built up that would just hit the heads. And once they built it, it had a groove and, and that changes music and that, that changes everything. Cause when you have that constant groove, it's very danceable. And then it's also very repeatable. It's the perfect thing for DJs, right? To go from one song to the next and be able to monitor a static groove like that, knowing the beats per second that are driving the song and knowing when you're going from one song to the next song. That's all of music since the Bee Gees. There were no big DJs like Mark Ronson in 1977, but they're created after the drum loop creates all this music, not to mention the democratization of music. When you can just get beats, you can get machines that provide the beats that lead to a whole new way people with voices, with something to say, can do it with music without having to get a drummer. These little moments in music history are fun, and the Bee Gees were at the heart of a few of them. One thing that has been in the trades a fair amount recently is this issue of celebrity documentaries and celebrities who are involved in the making of the film. Sometimes that can just mean giving a long interview covering their entire careers and maybe talking about things that they've never really discussed much before. Other times it could be that they're more involved in terms of producing the documentary. In terms of Barry's involvement with the film, was that something where you had to collectively as a group figure out where Barry was going to end and the story's producing team was going to begin? Did you always have creative control over the film, essentially? How did you navigate just the enormity of Barry Gibb being at the center of your story? Look, what you're talking about is the trickiest thing for any documentary, but certainly for documentaries that involve famous people or powerful people. And that's why I think it's crucially important to have these meetings prior to getting into business so that you can understand where everyone's coming from and the story the artist the subject believes is true and the story that the director wants to make. And that's a difficult conversation, but those conversations have to be had so that you don't catch anyone off guard. I think it's important that the artists or the subjects of the documentaries do not have creative control. And Barry did not have creative control of any kind in this film because that's not healthy for them or for the filmmaking team. So a certain amount of trust has to be in place. Now, having said that, it's hard for any of us to watch any aspect of ourselves with any sort of objectivity. That's the nature of being human. I try to make it clear to the subjects that it may be uncomfortable to watch a film about you, but you have to understand also that you may not be the expert in determining whether we got it right or wrong, that you need to 
depend on the people around you. I always urge when we share it with the subjects that their families also watch, their representatives watch, their trusted friends watch, people that they respect watch, because they're going to have a better understanding of the content than the subject. Now, I do think it's important, vitally important, and you can get there if you've had these early conversations, that there is some give and take. You want subjects to be enthusiastic about the film. And if you've done your job, you've told a true telling of the story, then that's the best case scenario. Did you show cuts of the film to Barry along the way or just show him the final film? No, we only show the final film. Showing cuts of a film or scenes of a film is tantamount to asking, can we have your opinion? Are we right? I think that's not healthy. That doesn't do anyone any good. No, I always think you make the film, you get the film to the place where you can stand behind the film, that you can talk and argue and make points about every decision you made to make that film. And then you show the film and then you have that discussion. I think you and I both, we're fans of the Bee Gees maybe when we were younger. And then my first concert was Beatle Lady, but my second concert was the Ramones. And after you bent the Ramones, it seemed like it was hard to appreciate the Bee Gees. And I wonder about your personal journey. I'm from a little town in Oklahoma, and we had to go an hour just to get to a record store. So my taste in music was a little crazy at first because we only had a little country AM radio station where I was. And I uh, leaned on my brother because he was four years older than me. He had a lot of albums before I had albums. I remember being distinctly a crazy kid. I I liked melody. I liked what they would call soft pop probably now. And I had a lot of those albums. And and I also had, or at least my brother had, I think, someone had Bee Gees albums because I adored the Bee Gees at a very young age. And this would be probably when I'm like 10 because... The voices were so sweet and the melody was so pure and it was so much fun. And then something happened very quickly in my teenage years. Disco sucks became a thing and T-shirts were around me and suddenly kisses on the scene and then the Ramones and a whole new avenue of music. And there was something about being a, a boy in a small Midwestern town that was like, You got to like the rough stuff, the hard music, the rock and roll is where it's at. And my musical taste shifted. I look back now and I think in part because of peer pressure, right? I I like that music. I still like that music, but I also like the Bee Gees music. When I got older, I went back to jazz. I'm a big jazz head and I went back to a lot of melodic stuff. And when I first started this project, I had a lot of I don't know if you want to call it uh, guilt or anguish over how that happened, because I had never really considered how my musical tastes had changed. And then delving into this and seeing what happened with the Bee Gees and with disco and where it landed in my own timeline, I felt I felt bad, to be honest. <laughs> I felt like I had uh, betrayed myself in some ways over musical choices that were maybe in a reflection of that moment in, in Comiskey. Thank you for that, Mark. I think we have time for just this one more question, which is about the disco demolition event and how it impacted the Bee Gees. And for the audience, this the disco demolition night happened on July 12th, 1979 at Comiskey Park in Chicago. A local DJ created a promotion whereby people could get access to 
the stadium that night for 98 cents if they brought a disco album that they wanted to have blown up, which they did after game one of a double header. And it caused basically a riot on the field. In the movie, we see the contrast between disco demolition night happening in Chicago and the Bee Gees tour in which they are incredibly popular. There's the sold out arena in Oakland where they're performing and you intercut the two events. Can you talk about how you created this almost operatic effect of going between these two events and how you figured out in terms of the emotion of the scene and the film, how to put the audience right where you wanted them? We always knew that was going to be the big moment in the film. And in some ways, the Bee Gees had no idea of what happened. They had no, had no clue. They were living in a bubble. They were riding on private jets. They were playing in stadiums. They, they were assuming that their life was only going to go up, forward, bigger, more. That's what made it so almost shocking about what happened. And so we decided early on that we were going to plant the seeds of this epic kind of blindside. And then it was going to come to fruition with this concert in Oakland that coincided roughly within a few days of what happened at Comiskey. To do that, we had to go make sure that we got people who were at Comiskey. And that was Vince Lawrence, who went on to become a pioneer of house music in Detroit, which was an offshoot of what happened with disco. And Nicky Siano, who was a, a DJ in New York in his own club, and then also Studio 54, that whole scene of the gay underground suddenly becoming the mainstream. The trick was to set those characters up prior to that moment and to paint the world in which the Bee Gees were ruling the day. And that world included these somewhat, you could say, marginalized groups suddenly having a foothold in the music industry. And so we wanted to show how big a blindside it was by having the Bee Gees at their highest moment. Think about it. They're playing Oakland. They're playing these stadiums at the same moment that the rug gets yanked out from underneath them. It was important for us to use the music of the concert to help drive the demolition night in Chicago. It's, you should be dancing. It ends up with basically this huge kind of tribal percussion beat that the whole audience in Oakland is clapping and cheering and stomping to. And we set that against the buildup to the blowing up of all these records in Comiskey. Most of the records, according to Vince Lawrence, were Black artists. They were just R&B artists. We used two or three pictures that were taken that night of the audience. There's one great picture. You see one Black guy in a sea of white faces, and all the white faces are probably 25-year-old boys. It's insane. Our first build of that was epic. It was like, it was maybe five minutes longer than what ended up in the film. It was like a short film. We realized that in terms of the proportion of the film that was overshadowing maybe even the Bee Gees career. We didn't want that. We wanted more the shock value of what happened and how it blindsided the Bee Gees set to their own music, to their own celebration really of success, which is what that is, like getting tens of thousands of people to be chanting and singing and stomping with you. We wanted that to be the, the soundtrack to the demolition. I don't think Mike and I are singing or stomping or chanting, but nonetheless, we are huge fans of this film. We're clapping. 
heartily. And we really want to thank you so much, Mark, for being with us here today. Thank you both for the great questions and for your for your enthusiasm. The Bee Gees, thank you as well. Thank you for uh, digging in with us on what a writer does. It's a crazy career. It's a funny title sometimes when you think about it. But it makes sense to me, and I guess that's all that matters. I know you have a lot of things going on, but maybe some sampling of what you have coming up next. I'm working on a big Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz documentary with Imagine and Whitehorse Pictures, my longtime partners at Whitehorse, directed by Amy Poehler. Yeah, I'm very excited for that. It's a pretty amazing project. You have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you feel maybe doesn't get the attention that it warrants. One of my favorite documentaries or most influential documentaries for me, Charles Ferguson's first film, No End in Sight, which was the very outset of America's never-ending war in the Middle East going into Iraq and what happened in Iraq and the people who were put in charge. It's a very disturbing film about the level of Ignorance and hubris that led to a lot of awful decision makings that cost thousands, if not tens of thousands of lives. It's a great film about America's will to just take over the ill-begotten ways. 